the world's changing pretty quickly. The right answer today is not going to be the right answer later. You need these kind of skills at the early part of your career, these kind of skills as you change careers, these kind of credentials as you move on up. You need to be curious because it's all about learning. These leaders in education and career training are talking about the skills workers need to get a good job and build a sustainable career. As educators and employers work together to build the best workforce, this is an ongoing and more prevalent discussion, especially with the lessons learned from the pandemic. Welcome to the Horizons podcast, where we take the conversations from JFF's annual Horizons conference and move them forward. I'm your host, Tamisha Bridges-Mansfield. Today, we're listening in on a lively panel discussion that includes thought leaders in education, policy, and technology, along with employers in the for- and nonprofit sector. We will move back and forth between their conversation and our guest. So let's introduce today's guest right away. I'm joined by Lee Lambert, Chancellor and CEO of Pima Community College in Tucson, Arizona. Lee is a leader in the Community College Workforce Consortium, a group of more than 30 community college leaders coordinated by JFF. In partnership with employers, the consortium is focused on innovative ways for community colleges to deliver training to their learners, enabling them to succeed in the workforce. So, Lee, thank you very much for joining us today. Well, thank you, Tamisha. I'm excited to be here with you to talk about America's workforce. That is great. So, first, um, to give our audience some context, why are we talking about this issue of skilling up and work-based learning in this moment right now? So, just to put it in a larger context, when companies are looking at Uh, relocating, as well as either staying where they are, talent becomes, if not the number one issue, it is among the top three to five issues. I think that is why we're talking about this issue, because companies are having a hard time attracting and retaining the talent they need to be successful in what they do for themselves and for our communities. No, that's great. And what do you see as the interplay between community colleges and employers right now in this time of work-based learning and, and skills-based hiring? Well, the, the relationship between and among our community colleges and our employers and our communities is growing in significance in terms of being able to, to meet that middle skills part of their respective needs. So those technicians with the sophisticated skill sets are going to increase as opposed to decrease in terms of the needs. So in order to make this kind of skills-based hiring and work-based learning environment happen, what do you think needs to happen to bring together educators and policymakers and other stakeholders? Well, I think one facet of that is we have to recognize the model we've built was based on an industrial era time period where the Carnegie unit became a key part of how we define and measure learning. And so how much time you're sitting in the classroom, for how many credits, all of that is now being cast aside in the 21st century 
and what the needs of the learner today, as well as business and industry, will not be defined by a Carnegie unit any longer. And it's not about credit or non-credit. It's about the focus on skills. So our policy apparatus needs to catch up to this new reality. So how do we make sure that community colleges will get recognized from a funding perspective for their work around skills development, whether it's credit or non-credit? So that's one facet. We also have to rethink the whole financial aid Title IV model, because how does a learner, especially a low-income, disadvantaged individual, be able to afford to take advantage of the opportunities if the opportunity is no longer defined by credit? And it's more, in many cases, more short-term focused, more modularized, stackable. The system isn't designed for that, but that's where the puck's going. Various leaders are reflected in the Horizons panel that brought us together today. Let's listen in to Julie Peller, Executive Director of Higher Learning Advocates, John Katzman, CEO of Noodle, Maurice Jones, CEO of 110, and Bertina Ceccarelli, CEO of Empower. All of these companies are committed to creating pathways to sustainable work for learners at every stage of their careers. Megan Hughes, president of Community College of Rhode Island, leads the discussion and will hand off to John Katzman. Each of you leads quite distinct organizations. What are you learning about skills development? for learners and workers. And I guess relatedly, where do you see opportunities for collaboration? So what are you experiencing in your individual sectors? And when you look at this panel, where do you see opportunities for collaboration? We're learning that complexity is bad, that most of the solutions out there are really clunky for companies and for students. And uh, figuring out how to internalize that, do what Apple would do, Mm -hmm. right? And make it something simple for the user is harder than it looks. It's why there's so few apples. I often think about doors in policy and in, in our systems. We make learners and people choose door one or door two, and that adds to that complexity, right? It makes people not be able to connect between the two. I think solving that and widening that path so that people can go through door one and door two and not either or, and we don't make it so hard for them to make that choice. Uh, Maurice, when you listen to what your two colleagues have offered so far, where would you engage the employer voice in this question? The employer voice? Yeah. Look, I think our big learning is this isn't about the employer voice or the talent's voice. It's about the ecosystem that you need, right? You need the employer. You need the talent. You need organizations that can help that talent continue to skill, reskill, and upskill, and you need wraparound supports. You need childcare, you need transportation, you need financial literacy. And so what the employer, if you were just focusing on the employer, what the employer can do is understand the holistic opportunity and demands of the talent. And work on mobilizing the community colleges, the empowers, the other employers, et cetera, that are needed to really create an ecosystem where people are getting prepared, getting into employment, and continuing to advance. Right? I would build on that uh, with 
one of the things that we're learning, and particularly post-pandemic, when so many have fallen through the cracks, is the importance of the continuum. And to allow for seamless transitions so that individuals can be guided, whether that is from high school to work, high school to college, or to a workforce training program, um, without skipping a beat. But what that requires all of us to do is partner very, very differently. Mm -hmm. And it's just thinking more intentionally and innovatively about partnership that I think is going to define at least so much of what we at Empower do over the course of the next 10 years. To some degree, though, those partnerships, what you're describing, that ecosystem, is hard and complex. And, the, and partnerships themselves are kind of endothermic. You have to just keep putting energy into them. The question is, what's the network backbone? What's the thing that makes it simple for people to become part of that ecosystem? Because it doesn't just happen. No, it doesn't just happen. But when you bring leaders together, particularly in a forum like this, where we can engage and understand where there are gaps and opportunities, we can make it happen and without a lot of friction. And welcome back to our studio. So Lee, there were some really interesting points to dive into in that last segment. Mostly what we're wanting to understand is what about this ecosystem and what is needed in the backbone of the ecosystem that Maurice, Bertina, and John talked about at the end of the segment. So who can center all of these groups and keep them on the same page? And who ultimately decides what success looks like when you bring people together like that? At Pima, I talk a lot about the four lenses of innovation. So this was a book that was written, and it looks at four aspects. So when you start to talk about the partnerships, they really align to the four lenses of innovation. So for example, you have to understand the needs. In order to understand the needs, you have to engage, in this case, with people who are going to be providing the opportunities, the jobs. And so you have to look at it from their perspective. So what is it that they need from today and tomorrow's worker that we may be able to align with and be able to provide that training, that education? So, so that's one important part of that lens of innovation. Another important aspect of the four lenses is leveraging resources. And the way I interpret that is, so beyond just the business and industry, who else is part of this whole talent development ecosystem? Well, it's our community-based organizations. Here in Tucson, Arizona, for example, we partner with JobPath. JobPath actually provides the wraparound support for a lot of our low-income disadvantaged, and they are a, a community-based organization. They're not the college doing it. They are a group that was actually formed by the faith-based community that we partner with to provide that wraparound support because they better understand the challenges the learner's going through. That's not our expertise. Mm -hmm. That's their expertise. So leveraging resources mean we're going to work with the people who is their mission to do X, Y, and Z. So I don't have to do that part of the mission. I can focus on what I'm about. So that's leveraging resources as an example. And then you get into harnessing the trends. So you look at where the technology, for example, is taking us, artificial intelligence, cloud computing, mobile tech, internet of things. That's where the puck is going. And so we need to be able to sit down with employers and say, how do we leverage those technology realities and how is that redefining the skills landscape? So I'll give you another example. So we recently reached an agreement with a company called Pony AI, Pony, P-O-N-Y dot A-I. 
Well, they're an autonomous vehicle passenger company. Mm. Their valuation is over $8 billion, and they are co-located with us in our automotive facility. And let me put this into context for a moment. So one of their senior executives recently spoke to a group of business leaders in my community. He, He said, think about it this way. Electric vehicle is like graduating high school. Autonomous vehicles are like graduating from college. Now, the electric vehicle, we don't have a trained workforce to really work on and service the electric vehicle. Now, add the autonomous on top of that. That's what those technologies that I was talking about are powering that transformation. And so when we start to talk about that ecosystem, you've got to have all of us sitting down together and saying, how do we create that workforce of the 21st century to support so that people will have opportunity? And it's exciting. And it all runs through your community college. We're in the best position to help develop the talent that the companies like Pony AI need. Mm -hmm. And would you say that in those instances of how you bring folks together, who holds everybody together at the table and holds folks accountable to keep the ball moving and to keep things going forward in service to what the needs of everyone at that table has? So that's going to be the interesting question. Who's going to emerge as that convener, if you will? And I think it can be a number of different individuals. Sometimes it's the county. Sometimes it's the city. Sometimes it's the workforce system in your respective community. Sometimes it's JFF. It could be the community college, or it could be the local economic development organization. But I think over time, we've got to figure out who are the right players to be in the mix. And then when the convener knows they have to step away, because they're not the ones who are the expert in providing the actual instruction that may be needed for the company. So I think that's what we're going to have to work through. Because right now, I notice it in my community especially, you have all these different groups who are at the table. Uh, But at the end of the day, reduce the friction point. The friction point that has to be reduced is connecting that employer to the provider of the training and education. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Everybody in between, you're getting in the way. And so so you have to figure out how you don't get in the way where you make it as frictionless as possible. So earlier in this segment, Julie Peller, Executive Director of Higher Learning Advocates, talked about workers only having two choices in terms of how they can get in, door one or door two, as they choose a pathway to success. What policies or what things need to change um, that we can look to here in the U.S. or elsewhere to guide us away from these limited door one, door two options so that the options are more expansive? Well, I think we're already starting to see that uh, happening here in the U.S., uh, but also in other countries. So I have the good fortune to go to Switzerland and to Germany to better understand their work-based learning models. You know, they're very, you know, apprenticeship oriented, but they have these dual tracks and you can either go the work-based learning flow in in Switzerland. You can go all the way up and get a master's degree that way versus going down the academic track that can get you all the way up to your PhD. More than 70% of families and their I hate to call them children, <laughs> but for, for you get what I'm saying. The, the folks in K-12, right, they choose the apprenticeship track. And then in that track, there's a multitude of options. So there may be first an entry point, but then the entry point branches out. 
it's like a tree, right? So what do we see is you have the trunk and then it branches, right? But what's not there are the roots. The roots run deep. And so how deeply do we ensure that the roots are in the ground to make sure what the learner sees or the parent sees is this clear trunk that will lead to the different offshoots. And that's what we have to make sure we strengthen is the roots. So in the case of Switzerland, uh, they work very closely with the K-12 system. So by the time you make the choice to enter what we call high school level, by then you have already chosen which track you're going to go. But that's a choice you get to make. Uh The, The school's not deciding that for you. But when they understand the options, they almost inevitably choose that work-based learning path. I think that's what we need to think about here in the U.S. So that's one facet of my answer. But what we're also seeing here in the U.S. is I come out of Washington State. I was the president of Shoreline Community College. So in Washington State, we created these integrated basic education skills training options. So that was recognizing that there isn't a door one, door two. Can we create many more doors to opportunities where you all of a sudden say, I don't have to first, if I test low in math or test low in in English, reading or writing, I got to first go through developmental education regimen before I can enter into the program of study. But why don't we integrate that? So you're starting to see a lot of that happening across the country. And I think that's exciting. So that's something I didn't see in Switzerland. Yeah. So I think if you can take the best of these different approaches, make sure you you get these firmly planted into the ground and they get rooted and supported by the policies, supported by the funding, then what the learner sees, they don't need to see the roots. They just get to see, here's the opportunities that I can follow. Right. It sounds like there's a lot of like deeper work that has to happen on the front end so that folks have a clear sense of what all of their options are and they're given the opportunity to explore and understand everything that's potentially before them. Absolutely. And I think that's what's incumbent upon us as adults, those of us not only in the education world, but also in the policy world, uh, those in the business sector. We have to be the ones to understand how to plant those roots deeply so that what you see as the learner or as the parent is very transparent to you. Uh, you don't need to see the the messiness, if you will. Yeah, I don't think anyone wants to see all that. <laughs> so um, let's move back to our panel discussion. Here, Bertina Ciccarelli, CEO of InPower, outlines how her company is working in partnership with Dallas College to get students who aren't even enrolled there college credits. The moderator, Megan Hughes, president of Community College of Rhode Island, and John Katzman, CEO of Noodle, will react. Let's listen again. Our students are earning college credits. They're not enrolled in Dallas College, but we're reaching into communities of students today who are not considering college an option. But once they get those credits, and once they get a job and realize, oh, this degree is going to be valuable, well, Dallas College is an accessible place for them to get their degree. So I think that that is a way in which we can scale some of our offerings. But as I think about the corporate partnership, you know, if I go back to systems and the backbone, sometimes the leaders are within our corporate partners who themselves may have that more non-traditional background and experience, who say, I want to bring in somebody who doesn't have a college degree. 
And a gentleman I talked to last week from a large defense contractor said, I know how to build great engineers. They don't necessarily have to have a college degree. He himself doesn't have one. But he said, what I'm looking for is baseline fundamental skills, maybe a certification program, but motivation, an eagerness to learn, ambition, and a sense of loyalty that this person's gonna be with this company for more than 18 months, yeah. right? And so when you have that kind of attitude, this is a company that typically doesn't hire those without college degrees, yeah. he's making a difference. Because now they're saying, the whole company is saying, well, this guy's doing a really great job and he's getting excellent results. Maybe we should relax that requirement across the board. So I love where you went, and John, I know I'm gonna turn it to you. So I will say I'm of two minds. There's no question in my mind, particularly in today's labor market, that employers are doing all sorts of things they never imagined they'd need to do, right? So part of this is they're focused on running a successful business. Where I wanna push is after that first job, how likely at scale and what models can you point to where it is genuinely a ladder? In my experience, the intent may be there, the aspiration may be there. I think those systems largely are still to be built. So I want to push a bit on this. I think there's a, a hopeful narrative and I say this as a community college president who talks all the time about, I could care less about the degree, uh, frankly, as a piece of paper, but I care a whole lot about the degree as a proxy for who gets in and who gets left out. And so I'm gonna turn it to you, John, and just ask you to reflect a little bit on what you've heard. Certainly challenge it. I'd also love to hear, again, sort of, if you're a wizard, point us a way forward um, with this, I would say, relatively early stage that we're at. We're doing some really fun work with employers who want simplicity, yeah. but who actually, given enough time, are willing to pay pretty much the full cost of a college education or a community college education, yeah. past Pell and, and, other, and other government money that's already there. But it has to be simple. And the process of sourcing the right students, bringing them right at the front of the process, while you're getting admission, you're also getting a job offer. And then getting the funder, in our case, we're working with Stride, mm -hmm. to put down the money so the school is getting its tuition. And then we're tracking the student. We're loving the student up. They're a Microsoft scholar. And the first job is before they graduate. But they're continuing on in their education and staying with it until they've actually got a degree. Let's keep this line going. When you say a degree, what do you mean? Two-year, two-year to four-year and graduate school. Generally, you're not gonna wait for somebody for four years, yeah. right? So there has to be something where I can wait a year or two as long as I have a steady pipeline and hundreds of students coming through it, but I can bring diverse talent to tech companies, to hospitals, to a bunch of people really looking for employees who are willing to pay, but not take risk and not put out cash before the, the employees actually started. They don't want to chase after someone. They want it to be simple. They want to track as the student is going through the process. I think it is the systems that can help schools as a group address corporate needs effectively. So I love, and I'm, Julie, I'm going to turn it over to you. Sure. We're going to, you're just going to be the wizard for the next five minutes. Is there a role for policy? And what's the role? Absolutely. Uh, I wouldn't be very good at my job if I said no. But you know, I think that there's two roles of policy. First of all, you pointed out it's on top of Pell, 
So there's already a large amount of investment. And there's a lot of policy behind who gets grants and other kinds of aid and where they can take it. And I think we need to broaden the conversation about that with quality and a return on investment for, for learners, absolutely. But we need to think outside of the box of where they can go. Secondly, there's areas where policy can get out of the way. We make it incredibly difficult for learners who have stepped out of the system, who have stopped out of school, to get back into school and receive critical financial aid in order to pay for it. That's an area where policy absolutely can get out of the way by recognizing that pathways are not linear and that learners don't go through this very regimented high school to college to a job. Welcome back to our studio. We want to have one final thought from you today, Lee, and that is what has the pandemic taught us about what work can and will look like in the future? And why is it so critical for us to address it, wrap our hands around it, and get it right now? The pandemic became an accelerant for the changes that were already underway. So we were already having conversations about upskilling and reskilling and the need to do this because of what the technology was doing to other industries, whether it was the newspaper industry, the music industry, and the like, right? We saw all of that, so you could see it coming. And all the pandemic did was forced us to move there a lot quicker. So it really helped us to better understand what it meant to move at the speed of business. We had already been yeah. working with our local food bank, to start to provide pantries. We weren't going to run the pantry. We partnered with our local food bank. Remember, I go back to the four lenses, leverage the resources. Uh, and, and so we were already doing some of those things. So then when this hit, it was like, okay, now it's in a different, you know, a whole different stage of things. But recognizing that our students needed this holistic support. I think where we were unfortunately caught off guard was on the access to technology tools. Because... The one thing that we were able to do when we were open is we had our computer labs. We had our Wi-Fi system so people could come to us and access all of that. So when this happened, you know, we didn't have laptops for folks. We didn't have hotspots for folks. And our broadband infrastructures are spotty all over the country, right? And so I think that was another important takeaway from all of this is we need to make sure we uh, provide those technology tools where the learner is moving in and out of not make it be a fixed place, but something that's more flexible and more mobile. No, and I think what you're saying is really consistent with, I think, what was the theme of Horizons last year, which was see beyond, right? That you have to always kind of be prepared and be thinking ahead because you don't know what's going to come ahead and you don't know what the needs are going to be in the immediate and where you might have to pivot, but you always have to have your lens kind of on the horizon and what's before you. And I think that, I think, is probably one of the biggest lessons. And I also appreciated what you said about taking care of your staff. I think that is something that I don't think people often think of, but that they're also the backbone of being able to make the work successful. So I just want to thank you for joining um, us in this conversation today, Lee. It was really great to talk with you and hear some of your reflections and some of your learnings. Well, Tamisha, just thank you for, for your time and I wanted to thank JFF. And I'm just glad to be part of our, our country's focus on reskilling, upskilling the American workforce. And thank you to our listeners for joining us. 
Please let us know what you thought about today's conversation and share a comment wherever you find your podcast. I look forward to carrying the conversation forward on other issues during our next episode of Horizons. For now, I'm your host, Tamisha Bridges Mansfield.